Don Bosco's kind, fatherly manner in dealing with the oratory boys was the exact opposite of the severe approach to discipline that was popular at the time. Often, he went well out of his way to help souls he barely even knew. However, he did also know how to put the fear of God into people, how to chastise those who severely needed it. I'll be telling two stories today that illustrate both sides of this incredible man. He was a multifaceted diamond of sanctity, showing both mercy and justice. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco gave all his time to the oratory boys on Sundays, holy days, and even weekdays. With the rector's approval for them, he sacrificed the time reserved for his daily walk or some other period. He went everywhere, into public squares, streets, and workshops to invite youthful workers to the oratory. On Sundays, these worker boys were left all alone and were wont to fritter away their meager wages on amusements. Don Bosco knew from experience that this laxity could lead to much evil and cause even the good to stray and become a danger of scandal to others. He particularly sought youngsters who, coming from afar, didn't know what church to attend and had no friends. Whenever he found that one of his boys was unemployed or was working under a harsh master, he quickly found him either a different occupation or a better employer. Not content with these efforts, Don Bosco went almost daily to visit the boys in stores, in factories, or at construction sites. He always had a kind word, a question, a sign of affection, or a small gift for them, leaving them filled with indescribable joy. At last, someone cares for us, the boys exclaimed. One day, near the city palace, Don Bosco met with a young man from his oratory who was returning from shopping. The young man was carrying a glass of vinegar, a bottle of oil, and other supplies. The little fellow, upon seeing Don Bosco, started jumping for joy and shouting, Long live Don Bosco! He put the oil bottle under his arm and shouted again, Viva Don Bosco! Then he clapped his hands. But he dropped the bottle, and then he dropped all he was carrying, and the glass containers broke on the ground. At the noise, the boy remained stunned for a moment. And then he began to cry, saying that when he returned home, his mother would whip him. Don Bosco kindly led the boy, still weeping, into a shop. He told the shop's mistress the story and begged her to replace what the young man had lost. Then the mistress asked, And who are you? I'm Don Bosco, he introduced himself. The good woman smiled, took a glass and a bottle, poured the vinegar and oil, and handed them to the young man. What do I owe you? Don Bosco asked. Twenty-two soldi, but it's paid already, the woman answered kindly. Thus, his friend could return home with the supplies and not get a whipping all through Don Bosco's help. And now I'll tell a story that shows the other side of Don Bosco. It was very common for whole families to visit him at the oratory. This was because he didn't limit his apostolate to poor, penniless street orphans but got into the habit of assisting any boy in need of help. Some went to expensive schools and would visit him for help with their Latin studies. These boys would also bring their families with them 
So the apostolate extended far beyond just the boys themselves, and he would give excellent advice to all who came as a good priest should. So that all sets the stage for this story. A young man by the name of Emilio Verniano formed a relationship with Don Bosco. The father, son, daughters, and mother all visited him in the reception hall on Thursdays. That family consisted of eight children, and all were eager to hear the words of Don Bosco. But he was displeased with their lack of modesty in dress. The daughters who were not yet 12 were excusable, but those older than 18 couldn't be excused for their attire. However, both because bitter reproach was the fashion and because the family was so good and didn't see anything blameworthy about the girls' unmoderated freedom, Don Bosco was unwilling to sternly criticize them immediately. Instead, with the suavity that only can come from the fruit of sanctity, he waited for the opportune moment. One day, the household came to converse with him. He was talking, and one of the daughters stood before him, listening, and the other stood with her mouth open. Suddenly, Don Bosco turned to her and said, Can you explain something to me? Well, yes, she said delightedly. Tell me, why do you despise your arms so? He asked. I, I don't despise them, she replied. Yet it seems to me that you do, he observed. Oh, far from it, the mother said. Often I have to scold her for being so vain. She's always washing her arms and then perfumes them with fragrant water. Yet I tell you, Don Bosco addressed the little one directly, that you despise your arms. Why? she asked. How? Because when you die, I pray that you go to heaven, but certainly these arms of yours will be thrown to burn in the fire. Is this not despising them? The girl responded, But I did nothing wrong. I don't want to go to hell. Don Bosco said, It will be at least purgatory, and who knows for how long. But this goes for me also, exclaimed one of the older daughters, blushing, because my neck is uncovered. Well, the flames from the arms will go up the neck and encircle it all, replied Don Bosco. I'm just going to pause the story here and add that Don Bosco wasn't referring to the neck being exposed, but actually a low-cut neckline. All right, back to the story. All right, I get it, concluded the mother. I understand. It's my duty to correct all of this. And she thanked Don Bosco for the warning. It's beautiful to see how prudence and modesty shine in this warning. When Don Bosco became a priest, he didn't shy away from dealing with all kinds of people and their problems. Thus, St. Paul says, I became all things to all men, that I might save all. That's why St. John Bosco was also concerned about his spiritual daughters, who were God's creatures redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he did so tastefully and respectfully. If you'd like to hear about St. John Bosco's vision of the persecution of the church, please click on the video I've put on the screen. Thank you all for even watching and subscribing to these videos. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. You may have heard of St. John Bosco's mystical dreams in which he would see the state of his oratory boy's souls or maybe learn some doctrinal truth from Our Lady, but have you ever heard of St. John Bosco appearing in other people's dreams? Or that boys with a vocation to the priesthood would have mystical experiences calling them to the oratory? 
We'll examine these well-documented events in this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. First, I'd like to tell a story where St. John Bosco recruited a young man through strictly natural means of apostolate, because that was the method he normally used and was very good at it. This story was repeated hundreds of times over the years and is as told by a very good mother, Mrs. Rosa Rostaño. She once visited Turin with her 15-year-old son, Severino, and decided to call on Don Bosco at the oratory, eager to make his acquaintance. She was very glad they did, for the priest was kindness itself. At one point, he even took Severino aside for a word in private, and although we don't know what was said, Severino was certainly a different person after it. That parley worked wonders for his spiritual life. The mother had remained at some distance and couldn't hear, but she was amazed to see the effect it had on her son. They left the oratory happy to have seen Don Bosco. The son kept the saint's words to himself and never confided them to anyone. Don Bosco dismissed Severino, telling him, Write to me sometime, and I'll answer you. However, the young man procrastinated in doing this, since he couldn't write very well, but when he finally did, the saint immediately answered him in a letter that read, Dear Severino, my beloved son, your letter has pleased me. If you felt great consolation when we were together, what joy will be when, God helping us, we're in heaven praising our Creator for eternity. Take courage, my son, be firm in the faith, Grow daily in the holy fear of God. Beware of bad companions as poisonous serpents. Attend the sacraments of confession and holy communion. Be devoted to Mary most holy, and you'll certainly be happy. When I saw you, I seemed to have discerned some design of divine providence over you. When you come to see me, I'll speak more clearly, and you'll know the reason for certain words I said. May the Lord grant you and your mother health and grace. Pray for me. Yours affectionately, Father John Bosco. Severino insisted that they visit Father Bosco at once, but his mother said they would have to delay their visit because she couldn't leave her family business just then. Finally, on the eve of the feast of St. Severinus, the young man said to his mother, As a present on my birthday, please take me to see Don Bosco. His mother agreed. The next day he was in Turin and spoke at length to the saint. After that final interview, the die was cast, and the boy eventually ended up attending the oratory. From this story, you can see the painstaking effort that Don Bosco went through to bring boys to the oratory, but in particular those in whom he saw a religious vocation. For these, he would move mountains. The effort involved in this particular case was of a material nature, writing letters, discussing topics with him, etc. But now we shall hear of his supernatural means of recruitment in this story. A young man once told his parish priest that he had a burning desire to be part of a religious order or congregation. This announcement gladdened the priest, but the boy added that for one reason or another he couldn't find one that suited him. The priest replied soothingly, Our Lady loves you so much that if you don't find an order or congregation that you like, 
She'll invent one for you that's to your liking. You'll see. The next Sunday, the young man eager to know God's will regarding his future went to pray a rosary before an altar of Our Lady in his village church and asked her to show him the way to follow his vocation. As the Angelus bell rang, he heard a distinct voice in his ear telling him to go to a certain place. The location isn't disclosed in the account, but the words were to the effect of, Go to location, and there you'll find Don Bosco. The young man started at this revelation. He had heard of Don Bosco, and once went to Turin to ask his advice, but they had never met. He knew that Don Bosco was the founder of the oratory, but had never heard of the Society of St. Francis de Sales. No one in his town had ever seen Don Bosco before, either. He quickly went and confided what the voice had told him to three good friends, who said, That's only an hour away from here. You should go. So the following day, he set out with one of his friends, and soon arrived at their destination, where they visited the local parish priest to inquire about Don Bosco. The priest replied that Father Bosco would, in fact, be visiting their parish in eight days. What were the odds? This filled the young man with joy, and he ran home to tell his friends about this miracle of divine providence. Eight days later, after the two met, Don Bosco took him back to Turin, and the young man eventually entered the congregation. There's also a story of another boy who greatly lacked discipline and fell behind in his studies at public school. His father spoke with some friends about the problem and told them that he couldn't afford sending him to some fancy boarding school. But the friends told him about a certain priest who had opened an oratory school in Valdoco where, with little expense, the pupils did well. The father objected that his son would be against going, but his son said, Dad, just send me. I can handle it. But even as the boy said this, he began to worry about losing his freedom. That very night, he had a dream where it seemed to him that he was in a courtyard, holding some papers in his hand. He saw many young men applauding a priest standing on the balcony of a house, and, for whatever reason, he found himself mounting the stairs to kiss the hand of that priest. Then the dream ended. After a few months, he entered the oratory, having fully forgotten the dream and was slowly adjusting to the rigorous schedule. He had not seen Don Bosco yet, who had left Turin and was to be away for several weeks. One day, he was called by the teacher at recess time and given a bundle of papers to take to one of the superiors. As he descended the stairs, he heard lively applause and cheers. He ran into the courtyard. Don Bosco had returned from his journey and was on the balcony. The dream came true. The same courtyard, the same crowd of young people, the same house, the same priest who had appeared to him, and he with papers in his hand. Remembering the dream and wanting it to be entirely fulfilled, he went up on the balcony and kissed Don Bosco's hand. But he wasn't the only one St. John Bosco appeared to in a dream. Another young lad wrote, When I was about ten years old, I had been worried and concerned for my future for several days in a row. While sleeping, I saw a priest standing at the gate of a magnificent garden. I approached the gate. The priest took me by the arm and invited me to enter, saying, 
Here you will spend the rest of your life. That dream made such an impression on me that, for quite some time after that, I lived recollected, devout, and went to church frequently. Several years passed, and that scene was still vivid in my mind. When I then came to the oratory, I saw the priest in the dream, and I soon understood the garden to be our Salesian society. But were these mere fantasies produced from the minds of these young men? Remember, they were all born and raised in entirely different provinces and with no connection to each other, yet they were all led to their vocation. These boys received holy ordination and persevered resolutely for many years, working among the youth entrusted to them by Don Bosco himself. Now, did Don Bosco know that these supernatural events were calling his boys to the oratory? Did he himself bilocate to appear in these visions? Or was it just the Blessed Virgin Mary herself that did the recruiting? I don't think we'll ever know. But the thing that we can all be sure of is that God wanted those young men to join the oratory, and that for them, it was the ark of their salvation. Thank you all for watching and subscribing, and if you'd like to hear how Don Bosco educated Catholic girls on modesty, please click the video I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Don Bosco wrote, One day, Dominic Savio came into my room saying, Quick, come with me. Where? I asked. All he said was, Come, hurry. He led me down several streets without a word and finally rang the bell at an apartment. They need you here, he said, and left. A woman opened the door. Come quickly, she greeted me, or it will be too late. My husband unfortunately became a Protestant. Now he's dying and wants to return to the church. I hastened to his bedside and helped put his conscience in order. He received last rites with a single emergency anointing. Some time later, I asked Savio how he had known about the dying man. He looked at me tearfully and started to cry, so I didn't press the point, mindful of the fact that saintly souls find it more painful to reveal God's graces than to confess their sins. St. Dominic Savio was one of St. John Bosco's oratory boys, and they were contemporary, meaning that they lived at the same time. They knew each other very well, so well, in fact, that St. John Bosco even wrote a book about him, and it's from this book that we learn of Dominic Savio's prophetism. He had many visions concerning the persecuted church in England, and even foretold his own death, which is the subject of today's episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Dominic Savio spoke about the Pope as a son would speak of his own father. He prayed fervently for him and expressed a lively longing to be able to see him. He repeatedly asserted that he had something of great importance to tell him. Hearing him speak about the Pope, Don Bosco once asked Dominic Savio what the most significant thing he wished to say to the Pope was. Dominic said, If I could speak to him, I would like to tell him that amid the tribulations that await him, he should not cease to concern himself with England. God is preparing a great triumph for Catholicism in that kingdom. How do you know all this? asked Don Bosco. Dominic replied, I'll tell you, but don't tell it to the others. 
one morning I was praying after communion. I was surprised by a strong distraction, and I seemed to see a vast plain full of people wrapped in a dense fog. They walked like men who had lost their way because they could no longer see where to go. A voice told me that this country was England. I saw the Supreme Pontiff, Pius IX, as I had seen painted in some pictures. He was dressed majestically, carrying a bright torch, advancing toward that immense crowd. As he approached, the fog disappeared in the glow of that torchlight, and the men remained in the midday light. The same voice told me that this torch is the Catholic religion that must enlighten the English. Dominic Savio also foretold his own death. The young men in the oratory did an exercise asking for a good death at the beginning of the year. Savio jokingly repeated several times, instead of praying for the one who will be the first to die, say a pater and ave for Dominic Savio, who will be the next to go. Dominic hadn't been feeling well, and sometime before, Don Bosco had already sent him home, hoping that the native heir would do him good. And with displeasure, Dominic obeyed. He arrived by coach to Castelnuovo and was forced to continue on foot to Mondonio because a letter announcing his arrival had not yet been delivered to his parents. He arrived home tired from the long way, and upon seeing him, his mother asked, You came alone? Had you no one for a companion? Dominic replied, I got out of the coach and immediately found a beautiful and stately lady who had the goodness to accompany me as far as the door of our house. But why did you not let her in? asked his mother, inviting her to rest. He replied, As I neared the village, she disappeared and I saw her no more. The good mother had an idea that the lady was Mary Most Holy. After a few days, Dominic returned to the oratory. He wished to continue his studies and usual practices of piety. Don Bosco would have kept him, but he wanted to follow the doctor's advice, all the more so since incessant coughing had been developing in him for some days. Dominic surrendered to this resolution, but only to make a sacrifice. He was asked why he went home in such a bad mood. They said, you should go home with happiness to enjoy the company of your beloved parents. He answered, I wish to end my days at the oratory. You should go home, they said, and after you've recovered in health, you can return. Oh no, he replied, I'm leaving and will not return. The evening before his departure, he had much to ask Don Bosco, and the questions he asked were, What's the best thing a sick person can do to merit before God? To offer frequently to God how much he suffers, replied Don Bosco. What else? Offer his life to the Lord. Can I be assured that I have been forgiven my sins? I assure you that your sins have been forgiven in God's name. But can I be certain that I am saved? You will undoubtedly be saved through divine mercy, which you don't lack. If the devil comes to tempt me, what shall I tell him? You will tell him that you have sold your soul to Jesus Christ and that he has bought it with the price of his blood to deliver you from hell and lead you to heaven. From heaven will I be able to see my oratory companions and my parents? Yes, from heaven you will see all the affairs of the oratory. You'll see your parents, 
the things that concern them, and other things a thousand times even more beautiful. Will I be able to come and pay them some visits? You may come as long as it's for the glory of God. He kept asking many questions, and he seemed like someone who already had one foot on the gate of heaven and wanted to inquire about the things within it before entering. On the morning of his departure, he joined his companions in the exercise of the good death with great devotion. Then he talked with them one by one, giving each a word of advice. He spoke to the confreres of the Society of the Immaculate Conception and with the most animated expressions encouraged them to observe the promises made to Mary Most Holy constantly and to place the liveliest confidence in her. At the moment of departure, he called Don Bosco and told him, Since you don't want this carcass of mine, I'm obliged to take it to Mondonio. It would only be a few days, then it'll be all over. Nevertheless, God's will be done. If you go to Rome, remember to tell the Pope about England. Pray I may have a good death and I'll see you again in heaven. He asked Don Bosco if he could receive the plenary indulgence at the hour of death, the blessing that Don Bosco had obtained from the Pope, and kissed Don Bosco's hand for the last time. When he reached home, the doctor judged him to be suffering from inflammation and bled him. The doctor and his relatives thought that the illness had improved, but Dominic judged differently. Guided by the thought that it's better to receive than lose the sacraments, he called his father. We should consult the heavenly physician. I wish to confess and receive Holy Communion. He received Holy Viaticum with the fervor of a seraphim. After a few days, Dominic asked for the anointing of the sick to be administered to him, and the relatives and the pastor granted his request. He also asked for the papal blessing. Armed with all the comforts of holy religion, he experienced a heavenly joy that can't be described. It was the evening of March 9th, and those who heard him speak and beheld his face thought that he was resting. No one suspected that he was on the verge of death. An hour and a half before he died, the pastor visited him and was happy to hear him commend his soul to God. Dominic clasped and kissed the crucifix in his hands and prayed fervent ejaculations, expressing the keenest desire to go to heaven. The pastor left expecting to see him again. The young man fell asleep and took half an hour's rest. Then, waking up, he looked at his relatives. Papa, he said, this is it. My dear father, it's time. Take the companion of youth and read me the prayers for a good death. At these words, his mother broke into tears and left the room. With sorrow, the father took courage and read the prayers. Dominic carefully and distinctly repeating each word. Then, after a few moments, he opened his eyes, smiling, and in a clear voice said, Farewell, dear father. Ah, what a beautiful thing it is that I see. He expired with his hands clasped on his chest in the form of a cross. On the evening of March 9, 1857, there was one less angel on earth and one more in heaven. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. St. Dominic Savio, pray for us. St. John Bosco was an actual prophet, meaning he could correctly predict when certain people would die. 
but this got him into trouble with the police, who thought him to be a lying, threatening upstart instead of seeing him for the saint that he was. We'll hear how Don Bosco proved his prophetism to a very suspicious detective from Turin in this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. One of Don Bosco's predictions of death had come true. In the first days of the school year, he had publicly told the young people to prepare to make peace with God, for one of their number would pass into eternity before Christmas. This recommendation caused panic among the new pupils. Many wanted to return to their families, and some families learned of this prediction from their children. After protesting to Don Bosco, they went to police headquarters and complained vigorously. The authorities promised them that the police would investigate the matter. A few days later, a detective called on Don Bosco. You have many young people, Don Bosco, he said, but you mustn't frighten them. Poor young men, when they're seized with fear, they're also disturbed in fulfilling their duties, and it's easy to frighten them. Then they'll lose that joyful character that a school must have. Moreover, there is the danger of harming them. If their fright is great, it may cause them serious illness and insanity. Excuse me, sir, Don Bosco said. Can you explain yourself more clearly? What are you trying to say? Your Excellency is a man who can understand things without much explanation, continued the detective. It's unhealthy for young people to brood on the idea of death. On the contrary, Don Bosco countered. It seems to do them good. The Holy Spirit says so, and he quoted, Remember your last days, and you'll never sin. Yes, said the detective, but to announce to the young people that one of them is to die within a certain time seems to me... Oh, now I understand, Don Bosco replied. You've heard that I announced that a young man would die before Christmas. The detective nodded. Precisely. And I am sent to you by the king's attorney, the fiscal lawyer, to advise you not to use these excessively violent and dangerous methods. Otherwise, under certain circumstances, the authorities would be forced to intervene. Some complaints have already been made, but no credibility was given to them. Resorting to the terror of boogeymen doesn't seem a convenient way to educate the minds and hearts of the young, and it's not the first time you've made such predictions. Excuse me, sir, replied Don Bosco. Even if I often make these announcements, do you know whether my predictions come true or not? If they do not come true, then you can say Don Bosco's a liar and the community of about 700 people should have noticed and should laugh at him. But if the predictions have come true, then my pronouncements aren't something to condemn as if they were imprudent. But does it not seem imprudent to announce such tidings that spread terror, disturb consciences, and cause other serious disturbances as well? The detective asked. You haven't answered my question, Don Bosco countered. Do the events bear out my predictions? The detective responded, well, let's just admit that the events have proven your predictions. So what? Don't you believe it matters to save one's soul? Don Bosco followed up. The detective agreed, I do not deny the importance, but Don Bosco interrupted, suppose I'm persuaded that I must, in conscience, warn those who aren't prepared, and suppose I know which ones they are. 
Is it charity or cruelty to warn a student of mine to prepare for God's judgment? If instead I kept silent and the young person died unprepared, don't you think I would be left with lasting remorse? The detective persevered. Well, if you're so persuaded, give warning, but not publicly. How would you want me to warn them otherwise? Don Bosco asked. Should I call the individual privately and say, you'll die soon? Oh, no, the detective responded. Then what do you suggest? Don Bosco asked. Look, Don Bosco, would you tell me the name of the one whom your excellency predicted will die shortly? The detective asked. I have no difficulty as long as you keep it a secret, Don Bosco replied. If you were to speak, your imprudence would be far more serious than the imprudence I'm accused of. The detective took out his notebook and picked up his pencil, staring into the face of Don Bosco, who at that instant had become very serious. Giovanni Borgero, Don Bosco said the name slowly. The detective wrote down the name and, bowing, departed. Giovanni Borgero, from Cambiano, was a 26-year-old priest. He was handsome, intelligent, and warm-hearted, and was loved by the whole oratory. He had spent the years of his boyhood at Don Bosco's side, giving bright hopes for the future. He joined the Salesian Society of St. Francis de Sales on January 23, 1861. However, in mid-1866, bored, enticed by relatives, and advised by unwise people, Don Bogero decided to leave the oratory. He presented himself to Don Bosco and asked permission to return to his home, citing his two sisters' need for assistance and his duty to find paid employment for this purpose. Don Bosco was very hurt by this and tried to persuade him to stay because Don Bogero's vocation was undoubtedly to persevere in the Salesians and God would provide for his sisters. But seeing him obstinate, Don Bosco ended by telling Don Bogero, if you want to leave, go ahead, but you think you'll help your sisters, who I know don't need your support. I tell you that you will not be able to assist them. Don Bogero returned to his relatives and obtained the post of vice curate in the parish of Villafranca Piedmont before long. He returned to great happiness, which he shared in a letter to Cavalier Frederick Oriella, telling him how much he liked his new place, fellow priests, and parishioners. Poor Don Bogero. Barely four days passed after he wrote that letter, and he was called to God's tribunal. On the morning of December 14th, he went to celebrate Holy Mass. He felt very well and was cheerful. He returned to the refectory and sat at the table, waiting for coffee. The one who brought it to him saw him with his head on the table as if sleeping. He had suffered a fatal stroke. On December 21st, a lawyer learned of Don Bosco's return from Florence. Having some business to conduct, he went to the oratory. He had heard of the prediction about Don Bogero. After he had given his opinion on business, the lawyer questioned Don Bosco. If you don't mind me asking, how is that young man you spoke of? Is it now Christmas time? He died a few days ago, Don Bosco answered. He's dead, the lawyer responded. Dead. Ask anyone in the house, Don Bosco replied. The gentleman stood and thought for a while in silence. Then Don Bosco, who loved to joke, said to the lawyer with a serious face, 
Do you wish me to tell you the things that must happen to you in the future? The lawyer stood up and said, no, for goodness sake. Taking his hat, he walked out. The detective also had not forgotten Don Bosco's response. So after the Christmas holidays, he appeared in the courtyard of the oratory. He approached a group of young people and said, hello boys, having fun? Of course, sir. In recess, one's always happy, they answered. Anyone sick in the house? The detective asked. No, sir, was the reply. Has anyone died here in the house these days? He continued. No, sir, they said. But I heard that someone died here from the house, he said. Of the young people? None, they replied. Aren't you all youngsters? Even some of you who are not students? The detective continued his questioning. No, they responded. We would know if someone had died. And outside, he asked. Ah, they said, a priest died, but it was already over a week ago. The detective asked, what was his name? Giovanni Bogero, they replied. The officer paled. He took out his notebook and compared the name with the one he had written down. Did he have a long illness? The young people answered, oh no, sir, he died suddenly of a stroke. Where did he die? The detective asked. At home. One morning he returned to the rectory, sat at the table to eat breakfast, and died. The detective wondered, was he sickly ever before? Never, the boys asserted. On the contrary, he enjoyed excellent and robust health. The detective stood silent. And then he asked, where is Don Bosco? He's in his room, the boys said. The detective went up and greeted the priest. Sir, he exclaimed, say whatever you wish to your young men. The detective kissed Don Bosco's hand and left, saying over and over, an extraordinary thing indeed. Thank you all for watching and subscribing, and if you'd like to hear about how Don Bosco appeared in a young man's dream, summoning him to the oratory so that he could follow his priestly vocation, please click on the video I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In this mystical dream of St. John Bosco, he's literally flown to a mysterious palace to hear advice from a bishop who had been long dead on how to avoid purgatory. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco spoke to the whole community after evening prayers. He said, Last night, not being able to sleep, I began thinking about the existence of the soul, how it was made, in what way it could speak in the afterlife while separated from the body. How could it transport itself from one place to another? How would we be able to know one another after death, since we exist only as pure spirits? And the more I thought about this, the more obscure the mystery became in my mind. So, while thinking about this and similar ideas, I fell asleep and seemed to be traversing countries unknown to me. Then, all of a sudden, I heard my name called. It was the voice of a person standing on the road. Come with me, he said. You will now be able to see what you desire. I obeyed, and we moved swiftly without our feet touching the ground. We then reached an unknown location, and my guide stopped. High above was a magnificent palace. 
I no longer remember whether it was on a mountain or a cloud. It was inaccessible, and no road could be seen leading to it. Go up to that palace, said the guide. How? I haven't got wings, I responded. Go up, he commanded. Seeing I didn't move, he said, Do as I do. Raise your arms and come with me. So he lifted his hands toward heaven. I opened my arms and immediately felt lifted through the air. In a few brief moments, we reached the palace gates. What's in here? I asked. Go in and you'll see. At the end of the hall, someone will teach you. The guide disappeared and I remained alone, so I entered and climbed the stairs. I passed through spacious halls, ornate rooms, and long corridors with supernatural speed. Every room glittered with splendor and astonishing treasures, and with great speed I moved through so many rooms that I couldn't even count them all. But the most admirable thing was that I was moving with the swiftness of the wind, but didn't move my feet because I was suspended in the air without touching the floor. Finally, I came to a great hall that was more magnificent than all the others. At the end, I saw a bishop who was waiting as if to give an audience. I approached respectfully and was surprised to recognize him as an intimate friend who died two years ago. He looked healthy, friendly, and very handsome. Your Excellency, is it really you? I said to him with great joy. Can't you see it's me? replied the bishop. Are you still alive? But didn't you die? I am dead. Because if you're alive, another bishop has taken your place. How shall we deal with this problem? Rest assured, I'm dead. And you, Don Bosco, are you dead or alive? I I'm alive. Can't you see I'm here in body and soul? But you cannot come here with your body. Yet, here I am. It seems you are... But you are not, I interrupted him, and I had to ask many unanswered questions. How can it be that I'm alive with you who are already dead? I feared the bishop would disappear, so I begged him, Your Excellency, please don't leave me. I have so many things to ask. Be calm, my son. Don't doubt. I won't leave. Speak. Are you saved? Look at me. See how well I am, fresh and resplendent? His appearance truly gave me hope that he was saved, but I insisted, Tell me, are you saved, yes or no? Yes, I am in a place of salvation. Are you in heaven enjoying the Lord or in purgatory? I am in a place of salvation, but I have not yet seen God, and I still need your prayers. How much longer will you be in purgatory? He handed me a paper and said, Read this. I took the paper in my hand and looked at it carefully, but I saw nothing written on it, only floral designs, and said, I see nothing on it. The bishop looked at that paper and said, Turn the paper upside down. I examined the paper more carefully and turned it every which way, but it seemed that among the floral designs was only the number two. The bishop continued, Do you know why it's necessary to read this upside down? The judgments of the Lord are different from the world's judgments. What men think is wisdom is foolishness to God. I dared not press for a more precise explanation and said, Your Excellency, I want to ask you some other questions. Ask away, I'll listen. 
Will I be saved? You must hope, my son. Please tell me if I will be saved. I don't know. At least tell me whether I am or, or am not in God's grace. I don't know. But will my boys be saved? You have studied theology, and you can answer that yourself. You're in a place of salvation, Your Excellency, and you don't know these things? The Lord makes known to whoever He wills. If He wants this knowledge communicated, He gives the order and permission. Otherwise, no one can reveal it to the living. Many, many questions came to mind, and I asked them in haste for fear the bishop would withdraw. Tell me a few things to report to the boys from you. You know as well as I do what must be done. The church, the gospel, and the scriptures tell you everything. Tell them to save their souls, because the rest counts for nothing. We already know that we have to save our souls, but how are we to do this? Tell me something special we can remember that I can tell my boys on your behalf. Tell them to be good and obedient. And who doesn't know these things, Your Excellency? How about something else? Tell them to be modest and to pray. But can you explain that more practically? Tell them to confess often and make good communions. Something else, Your Excellency. Tell them that they have a fog before their eyes. If they are aware of it, it's a good sign. So let them remove it. But what is this fog, Your Excellency? It's all the things of the world which prevent them from seeing heavenly things as they are. And how are they to remove this fog? Let them consider the world as it is. The whole world is under the influence of the evil one. Only then will they save their souls. Let them not be deceived by the appearances of the world. Young people believe that the world's pleasures, joys, and friendships are the only things that can make them happy, so they only spend their time enjoying these pleasures. But let them remember that everything is vanity and affliction of spirit. Let them form the habit to see the things of the world not as they appear, but as they are. But what causes this fog, Your Excellency? The virtue that shines brightest in heaven is purity, so the sin of immodesty and impurity mainly produce this darkness and fog. It's like a very dense black cloud that takes away sight and prevents young people from seeing the precipice to which they are speedily heading. Tell them to persevere in the virtue of purity jealously. The pure shall flourish like the lily. At this, Don Bosco asked, what does it take to preserve purity? Tell me, and I will announce it to my dear boys. The bishop responded, Four things. Prayer, obedience, avoiding idleness, and flight from worldly things. Nothing else? Prayer, avoiding idleness, obedience, and flight from worldly things. Insist on it. That is enough. I still wanted to ask many things, but none came to mind, unfortunately. So as soon as the bishop had finished speaking, I was eager to tell you the advice he had given me, so I left that great hall quickly and ran to the oratory. I flew with the swiftness of the wind, and in an instant, I was at the door of the oratory. When I arrived, I stopped and thought, why didn't I stay longer with the bishop? 
I would have had even better clarifications. I was wrong to let such a good opportunity escape me. I could have learned so many more good things. I turned to go back, but bumped my knee into something, and I awoke. Remember that this is a dream like all other dreams, and as far as you are concerned, it needs no explanation. We're still quite imperfect and have remnants of sin to atone for and habits to give up. So even though we've gone to confession many times, we still must atone for our sins. Therefore, purgatory is the perfect place that God and his mercy has created to purify us. Thus, Don Bosco finished his extraordinary speech to his community. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to watch a playlist of all the dreams that we've performed on this channel, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Did you know that St. John Bosco did apostolate with young men in prison? In this story, he manages to take 300 of them out for a hike. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Prisons continued to be one of the fields where Don Bosco exercised his priestly ministry. But among these places of punishment, there was one for which he had special affection, La Generala in Turin. La Generala was, and still is, a correctional facility for juvenile offenders, either handed over by their relatives for correction or even condemned by the police councils or the courts for some more or less serious crime. Many inmates came from parents who cared little or nothing for their children's upbringing. Some had parents who were already incarcerated, and a few were orphans who had gotten into trouble with the police. Young men over 20 were drafted into the army, and those who had not yet completed their sentences were moved to adult prisons. At night, the inmates are locked up in separate cells, and during the day, they work in the fields or at some trade, always supervised by the guards. At a time when religion had a place of honor, discipline was easier, customs improved, and the young men gradually found themselves as if regenerated to new life. But when there was little or no influence by religion, riots, quarrels, brawls, injuries, attacks against morals, and other terrible actions had to be punished. Therefore, as long as the authorities allowed Don Bosco to visit those poor young men and his occupations allowed, he would go. With the permission of the director of prisons, he instructed them in catechism, gave them sermons, and heard their confessions. Seeing themselves treated with such goodness, the young prisoners regarded Don Bosco as a father, and they gave him the sincerest proofs of esteem and affection. They endeavored to lead a new life beyond reproach. Shortly after Easter in 1855, Don Bosco gave those young men the spiritual exercises. His gentleness and charity had won over even the unruliest. He had succeeded in getting them all, but one, to approach the holy sacraments. The holy priest, moved by their change of heart, resolved to obtain some relief for them. The first thought that came to him was of a good hike. So he went to the city's director of prisons and said, I come to make a proposal. Is there any likelihood it will be accepted? We will do all we can to please you, for your influence on our prisoners has been of great help to us, replied the officer. 
then I beg a pardon for those poor young men whose exemplary conduct for a long time has given no cause for complaint. Allow me to take them all out for a day. I will take them on a hike to Stupinigi. I would leave early and return at night. This walk will do good for their body and soul. But then the stunned director jumped out of his chair and said, But you're not serious, father. I speak with the greatest seriousness in the world, and I beg you to consider my request. Do you not know that I'm responsible for every escape? cried the officer. Rest assured, replied Don Bosco, that there will be no escapes if you entrust these young people to me. I take full responsibility to bring each of them back to you. The director of prisons finally agreed. He conveyed the request to Urbano Ratazzi, the minister of the interior. He was a man who lacked moral qualities. Nevertheless, he had much ingenuity. He reflected momentarily on the proposal which the director of prisons presented to him on behalf of Don Bosco. It wasn't long before St. John Bosco himself visited the minister with that simple and open air which was natural to him and which he always retained even in the presence of the highest personages. The minister received him with civil kindness. I want to consent to the proposal, he said. You can implement your plan, which will do much moral and physical good to these young prisoners. I will provide for disguised armed soldiers that will follow you from a distance to help in case some unruly soul should refuse to return to prison in the evening. But your excellency, Don Bosco replied, I am most grateful for your courtesy, but I will only put my plan into effect on one condition. That is, that you allow me to be all alone with the young men, that you give me your word of honor not to send along armed guards. I take full responsibility, and your excellency shall put me in prison if any disorder occurs. The minister was astonished. But, he exclaimed, you will not bring back even one of those prisoners in the evening. Trust me, replied Don Bosco. His demeanor clearly showed that he would not relent. So it was either take it or leave it, and Ratazzi was curious to see the results. Besides, Don Bosco inspired him with confidence. Therefore, he allowed Don Bosco to do what he wanted. The saint did not delay in returning to La Generala to arrange for the 300 prisoners to enjoy the favor granted them. On the evening before that memorable day, he gathered them all together and spoke thusly. Boys, he said, I have good news. As a reward for the good conduct, and as a reward for your correspondence in the course of the spiritual exercises, I have gone to the director of prisons and the minister of the interior and have obtained permission to take you for a hike tomorrow as far as Stupinigi. Hearing these words, the boys raised an enormous cry of wonder and joy. Don Bosco continued, You see how great this favor is. It has never been granted before. Long live the minister! Long live Don Bosco! exclaimed the boys, full of enthusiasm. Yes, long live the minister, continued Don Bosco. But now listen, I have given my word that you will behave yourselves and that tomorrow evening you would all return here. Can I be sure that none of you will try to escape? Yes, yes, we'll be good, was the unanimous cry. Indeed, one of the older ones said, If anyone even tries to escape, I'll run after him and snap his neck like a chicken. Another 18-year-old husky fellow added, I will smash the head of anyone who displeases you with a stone, and he certainly will not come home alive. Don Bosco replied, Enough, this talk is not good. 
I trust you all. I know you love me and will not displease me. Note that the city of Turin will have its eyes on us tomorrow. If anyone misbehaves, we'll all be in trouble. I would be in more trouble than anyone else because I asked for and obtained this favor for you. You'll be caught after a few hours. At most, after a day or two, you'll be arrested again and put in a harsher prison. On the other hand, if you all conduct yourselves well and return without causing any problems in the evening, perhaps you may enjoy similar outings from time to time. But all these are earthly considerations. There is one that is more important. You have recently promised God to be good and never offend him again. He's watching you from heaven, ready to bless you now and in the future if you're faithful to him. Give proof tomorrow of the sincerity and firmness of your resolutions. No disobedience, quarrels, or fights. Do you promise? Yes, yes, we promise. And then one of them added, You will be our commander-in-chief, and on behalf of all of us, I assure you that never did any commander have more disciplined soldiers. The next day, they all exited their prison together. They gratefully enjoyed a day of sunshine and freedom preceded by a donkey laden with provisions. Their affection for Don Bosco was touching. When they saw him a little weary from the journey, in the twinkling of an eye, they took the provisions off the shoulders of the donkey, carried them themselves, and then compelled Don Bosco to ride on the donkey. At Stupinigi, Don Bosco led them to church, celebrated Holy Mass, treated them cheerfully at lunch and snack time, and occupied them in various amusements throughout the day. To depict the contentment that flourished on all those faces is impossible to describe. They enjoyed a world of delights in the avenues of the royal castle, in the shade of the trees, on the banks of the waters, and in those meadows blanketed with succulent grass and covered with flowers. Their conduct was impeccable. No strife disturbed the peace of that day, and Don Bosco needed neither warnings nor reprimands to maintain discipline. In the evening, they all returned to prison more resigned to their fate and more docile than before. The minister waited impatiently for the expedition's outcome, but Don Bosco, without wasting a moment upon return, went in person to the minister, who was astonished at the priest's account. He said, Father, I'm grateful to you for what you've done for our young prisoners, but I would like to know why the state does not have the same influence over those young men that you do. Don Bosco replied, Well, Your Excellency, our force is a moral force, unlike the state, which knows only how to command and punish with coercive force. We speak primarily to the heart of the youth, and our word is the word of God. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please follow the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Let's go. I'm going to tell you the story of a vision St. John Bosco had in which he could discern the state of his oratory boy's souls depending on what gifts they offered to Our Lady. And as I'm telling the story, you can ask yourself, what gifts would I be giving the Blessed Mother? Roses or a pig's head? You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller.
In the month of May, Our Lady was honored at the oratory school by the whole community in a unique way. May 30th was especially dedicated to the Blessed Mother with an evening talk. On one of these commemorations, Don Bosco related the following dream. I saw a great and magnificently adorned altar dedicated to Our Lady. All the boys of the oratory went in procession toward it. They sang the praises of the Heavenly Virgin, but not all in the same way, even though they sang the same song. Many sang well, others sang poorly and out of tune. Still others broke out of line, while others seemed bored or laughed together. However, everyone offered gifts to Mary. They brought bouquets of all sizes. They had roses, carnations, violets, and other flowers. I was horrified to see that some brought the Virgin strange gifts, such as a pig's head, a cat, a plate of toads, a rabbit, a lamb, or other bizarre offerings. A handsome young man with wings stood before the altar. He was perhaps the guardian angel of the oratory. As the young men offered their gifts, the angel received them and placed them on the altar. The first boys offered magnificent bouquets, and the angel placed them on the altar without saying anything. Other bouquets had spoiled flowers that he threw away and then reassembled and put on the altar afterward. Bouquets with odorless flowers such as dahlias, camellias, etc. were also removed. The angel removed other flowers with thorns and nails. A boy came with a pig's head. The angel said to him, How dare you offer this gift to the most sacred virgin? Do you know what swine represents? It symbolizes the ugly vice of impurity. Mary, who is all pure, can't tolerate this sin. Step aside. You're not worthy to stand before her. Others presented a cat. The angel said to them, How dare you bring Mary these gifts? Do you not know what the cat symbolizes? It's a figure of theft, and you offer it to the virgin? Thieves take money from their companions, steal food from the oratory, tear clothing out of spite, and squander their relatives' money by not studying. Thus he made them withdraw to the sidelines. Some boys had toads to offer. The angel looked at them disdainfully and said, Toads symbolize sins of scandal, and you offer them to the virgin. Go with the other unworthy ones. They retreated in confusion. Others came with a knife plunged into their hearts, a symbol of sacrilege. The angel asked them, Do you not see that you have death in your soul? You are now alive only by the mercy of God. Otherwise you would be in hell. For pity's sake, have that knife removed. They too were rejected. Gradually, all the other young men approached. Some offered lambs, rabbits, fish, nuts, and grapes. The angel placed everything on the altar, having thus divided the good from the bad. He made all those whose gifts to Our Lady were acceptable line up before the altar. However, to my sorrow, those who had been set aside were far more numerous than I would have imagined. Then, two other angels appeared on either side of the altar. They held up two richly adorned baskets filled with magnificent crowns of roses. These roses were not earthly flowers, but symbolic of immortality. The guardian angel crowned all the young men arrayed before the altar. The crowns varied in size, some larger and others smaller, 
but all were of admirable beauty. I also noticed not only young men from the oratory, but many others whom I had never seen. Then I beheld a wondrous sight. There were some young men so unattractive that I felt repulsed by their ugliness. However, they were given the most beautiful crowns. I saw this as a sign that the virtue of chastity made up for their homely exterior. Many others had the same virtue, but to a lesser degree. Many were distinguished by their practice of virtues like obedience, humility, and love of God. All received appropriate crowns in proportion to their virtues. The angel told them, Mary has willed today that you should be crowned with such beautiful roses. Remember to maintain your virtue so that they are not taken from you. To keep your crowns, practice humility, obedience, and chastity. These three virtues will always make you acceptable to Mary, and one day will make you worthy to receive crowns infinitely more beautiful. Then the young men began to intone the hymn Ave Maris Stella. After the first verse, they left in single file singing the song. I was amazed. I followed them for a while and then went back to see the young men the angel had set aside, but I couldn't find them. I know which ones were crowned and which ones were cast away. I will tell the individuals so that they may bring the virgin gifts that she will accept. I have a few observations. The first one is that they all brought flowers to the virgin, which had many qualities. However, I noticed that all of them had thorns. The thorns symbolized disobedience. It includes things like keeping money and not wanting to hand it over to the prefect for safekeeping, asking permission to go to one place and then going to another, going to class late, eating secret snacks, and going to other people's dormitories when forbidden. Whatever reason or pretext you may have, beware of getting up late, neglecting prescribed practices of piety, talking when it is time for silence, buying forbidden books, sending letters without permission, and doing business by buying and selling with one another. All these things are thorns that diminish the value of your offerings. Many might ask, is it a sin to break the house rules? The answer is yes. Whether it's a mortal or venial sin depends on the circumstances. However, it is a sin. Someone might object that there's nothing in God's law about disobeying the house rules, but yes, there is. It's found in the commandment, honor your father and mother. The words father and mother mean not only parents, but also those who take their place. Is it not also written in the Holy Scripture, obey your superiors? They have the power to command, and you must obey. This is the origin of the rules of the oratory, and they are obligatory. The second observation is that some bouquets had nails in the flowers. Nails were used to crucify Jesus. But how can that be? We offend God by always starting with the small things and then working up to the big ones. For example, a boy who wants money to spend on his whims and thus doesn't want to hand it over for safekeeping. Then he sells his school books and ends up by stealing money and stealing other belongings from his companions. This is the way he falls into mortal sin. This is how the nails were found in those bouquets. The third observation is that 
Many young men had rotten flowers or beautiful ones with no scent among the fresh and fragrant flowers in their bouquets. These rotten flowers signified good works done in mortal sin and thus without merit. The scentless flowers are good works done for human ends, such as ambition or pleasing one's masters and superiors. The angel rebuked them for daring to bring such offerings to Our Lady. He sent them back to rearrange their bouquet. These boys withdrew, undid the bouquets, and removed the spoiled flowers. Having rearranged the flowers, they would tie them up as before and bring them back to the angel, who accepted and placed them on the table. Each boy came as soon as he was ready. Some came sooner and others later. However, each returned his bouquet and went with those who received crowns. In this dream, I saw all that was and will be regarding my boys, both past and future. I have already spoken to many. I will talk to others later. In the meantime, you should give the Heavenly Virgin gifts that never have to be refused. So Don Bosco ended the narration of his dream. And if you'd like to hear some more of his dreams on this channel, please click on the link to the playlist I've put on the screen. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco was a prodigious writer. Looking at his mountain of literary work, it boggles the mind that he had the time to pin all those articulate books and pamphlets, including a catechism titled, A Catholic Instructed in His Religion. It taught the faith in the form of a story about a father conversing with his children about a variety of Catholic topics. We'll be going over his chapter on the schism of the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches from the One Holy Roman Catholic Church in this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Michele, the oldest boy, began the family conversation around the fire by asking his father about schism. He said, We often hear talk about the schism of the Greeks, that is, the Greek Orthodox Church that broke with the Holy Roman Catholic Church. I understand very little about it, and my brothers understand very little also. So could you tell us the history of the schism? The father looked hard into the fire as if about to embark on a long journey in his mind. Then he replied, Since this is the first time you have heard someone speak of schism, it would be good to understand what this word means. Schism is from the Greek schisma, which means a split or tear caused by differences of faith. And when we say schism of the Greeks, schismatic Greek church, we mean a part of the Greeks separating from the Catholic church. Are you saying that not all Greeks are schismatic? No, my children. A considerable part of the population of Greece are united to the Roman Catholic Church. Hence, they belong to the true Church of Jesus Christ. So where did the schism originate? This schism, the separation of a part of Greek Catholics from the Catholic Church, is attributed to the pride of a patriarch of Constantinople named Photius. Since Constantinople had become the Roman Empire's capital in the 5th century, the emperors periodically encouraged the city's bishops to constitute themselves heads of the Catholic Church. 
an act that would have constituted a rebellion. For centuries, no one dared to do so openly. There needed to be a person like Aphodius. He was the secretary to the emperor in the ninth century, therefore a layman. He had never studied ecclesiastical works, much less did he practice the virtues necessary for those who aspire to the sublime dignity of a priest. Nevertheless, ambitious as he was, he saw that a virtuous prelate named Ignatius was driven from his position. Ignatius was a man most exemplary in all things related to his holy office. He was a man of God who was deposed, persecuted, and sent into exile, and continued to oppose the errors of Photius intrepidly. For his part, Photius wanted to become a bishop at any cost, so he left the office of secretary and, in six days, had himself ordained acolyte, subdeacon, deacon, priest, bishop, and patriarch by a heretic. Then Photius recused himself from all relations with the Roman pontiff. He did so because the pope would not approve of the unlawful manner in which he had been made bishop. After all, Photius became bishop out of ambition to constitute himself head of a quote-unquote church. Driven by the desire to meddle in the church's affairs, the East's emperors contributed much to accomplish this schism. So was the schism fully carried out in the time of Photius? Michieli interrupted. Well, replied his father, Photius began it by deed and writings, but his successor patriarchs kept themselves united to the Roman church for quite some time. However, Michael Cerularius, one of Photius' successors, was driven by the same spirit of pride and consummated the fatal schism that still keeps many Greeks separated from the true church till today. Michieli was outraged and asked, didn't the popes back then work to bring those heresiarchs to repentance and reunite them? Oh yes, his father answered. The popes, especially Nicholas, did what any tender father would do for the repentance of his children. He wrote several letters to Photius and the emperor. He sent them legates, but nothing helped temper the pride of Photius. St. Leo IX also tried to prevent such a great evil, writing the most loving letters to Cerularius. He also tried to send two legates to Constantinople to discuss these matters with him. Still, the patriarch refused to receive them and died obstinately. There were even two ecumenical councils that were celebrated in an attempt to reunite the Greeks with the Roman Church, one in Lyon, France in the 13th century, and the other in Florence, Italy in the 15th century. But it wasn't long after the Greek prelates returned to their countries that they fell back into old errors. That's terrible, said Michieli sadly. What are the main errors of the schismatic Greeks anyway? Why did they split? Well, at the beginning of the schism, his father began, the primary error of the Greeks consisted in not recognizing the religious authority established by God in the Roman pontiff. Instead, they became schismatics and fell into all sorts of other errors and even went so far as to deny purgatory and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Well, with all this splitting going on, Michieli said, I find it hard to believe that the Greek church of today still holds the same unity of faith it had at the beginning of the schism. Definitely not, the father exclaimed. 
When a group separates itself from the Church of Jesus Christ, it can't preserve unity of doctrine. It becomes similar to a branch separated from the trunk of a tree. Therefore, those who enjoyed the bond of faith and separated themselves from the Roman Church for centuries no longer have the same heads, sacraments, or rites. For example, Russia follows the schismatic Greek Church. Still, the Tsar is the head and supreme judge of all religious disputes. Remember, Don Bosco wrote this in 1853, when the Tsar was still around. The Patriarchs of Constantinople itself is dependent on the Grand Sultan, the Emperor of the Turks. When a Patriarch dies, he puts that dignity up for auction, and whoever offers the greatest sum of money becomes the new Patriarch. Provided he's rich, anybody, even a complete scoundrel, can become the Patriarch of Constantinople. This behavior leads to grave disorders in matters of religion. Thus, those who refused to submit to the vicar of Jesus Christ, who ruled them as a tender father, are often forced to submit to those who rule as tyrants. Yes, that's so true, Michiele said, wide-eyed. Why can't they see that? Before their schism, did the Greeks believe all that the Latins believed? Absolutely. Before the Greek schism, the Latins and Greeks always professed the same faith in all general and particular councils. They unanimously recognized the Roman pontiff as head of the universal church. But did the Catholics change anything about their religion after the Greek schism? No, nothing at all. Catholics believed the same truths before this schism and continued to believe and profess them to this day. Michiele threw up his hands at this and said, If nothing changed in the Catholic religion, the religion of Jesus Christ, then obviously all the change was on the side of the Greeks. They abandoned the true church. I know, his father said, nodding and starting to rock his chair again. It's what they call a self-evident truth. Nothing changed in the Roman Catholic Church. All the change was on the side of the schismatics back then who separated themselves from Catholic unity, from the true Church of Jesus Christ. This chapter brings so much clarity to the situation. All I can say is, thank you, Don Bosco. And if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Today's story covers two events from St. John Bosco's life, his incredible vision of the handkerchiefs of purity, and his assistance in converting an apostate priest from Protestantism. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. It was on the night of the 14th when I had just fallen asleep, and I heard a great knocking on the headboard. I jumped up, thinking it was lightning. I looked around but saw nothing, so I went back to bed. But no sooner had I fallen asleep again than a second explosion wounded my ears and shook me. Then I got out of bed, searched around and looked under the bed, under the coffee table, and in other areas of the room, but I saw nothing. Then I blessed myself with holy water and went back to bed. Then my mind began to wander, and I saw what I am about to narrate. 
It seemed to me that I was in the pulpit about to preach a sermon. The young men were all sitting at their seats with their eyes fixed on me, waiting attentively for me to speak. Nevertheless, I did not know what subject to talk about or how to even begin the sermon. However much I struggled with my memory, my mind remained barren and empty. Thus I stood for some time, confused and distressed. Never had this happened to me before. Suddenly the church turned into a great valley, and I couldn't believe my eyes. But what on earth is this? A moment ago I was in the church, in the pulpit, and now I'm in this valley. Am I dreaming? I proceeded through the valley, looking for someone to ask for an explanation. I saw a beautiful palace with many large balconies. In front of the palace stretched a square. In one corner of it were a large number of boys standing around a lady who was handing out a handkerchief to each one of them. They took the handkerchief and went up and arranged themselves one after the other on that long terrace. I also approached that lady and heard what she was saying to all the young men. Never unfold it when the wind is blowing. If the wind surprises you when you have it unfolded, turn immediately to the right, never to the left. I watched all those young men, but I didn't know any of them at that moment. When the distribution of handkerchiefs was finished and everyone was on the terrace, they made one long line and stood there without even saying a word. I watched one young man take out his handkerchief and unfold it, then another followed suit. The handkerchief was very wide, embroidered in gold with Regina Virtutum, Queen of Virtue, written on it. Suddenly, wind from the north came, and gradually it got stronger. As soon as this wind began, I saw some young men immediately fold their handkerchief and hide it. Others turned to the right. Others stood motionless with their handkerchief unfolded, flapping in the wind. Suddenly the wind became fierce, and a cloud covered the sky. Then a whirlwind arose. A tremendous thunderstorm broke out, and thunder rumbled fearfully. Hail fell, then rain, and finally snow. Many young men kept their handkerchiefs stretched out. The hail beat into it, piercing it from side to side, and the rain, whose droplets seemed to have a point, as did the snowflakes, pierced it. All those handkerchiefs were broken, pierced, and utterly destroyed in a moment. Stunned at this, I didn't know how to explain it. What was worse was that as I approached those young men whom I had not known before, having looked more carefully, I distinctly recognized all of them. They were my young men from the oratory. I asked one of them, what are you doing here? Are you so-and-so? He answered, yes, I am. I then went to where that lady was handing out handkerchiefs. Some other men stood nearby and I asked them, what does all of this mean? The lady turned to me and answered, Did you not see what was written in those handkerchiefs? Yes, I did. Regina Virtutum. Do you understand now? Yes, I do. Those young men exposed their virtue of purity to the wind of temptation. Some, at first noticing it, immediately fled and were the ones who folded and hid the handkerchief. Others, surprised and having had no time to hide theirs, turned to the right, and those who were in danger resorted to the Lord, turning their backs on the enemy. 
Others then stood with their handkerchief open to temptation, which made them fall into sin. At this sight, I remained frowning and was about to despair, seeing how few were those who had persevered in the beautiful virtue. I broke into a sorrowful cry for a while, and when I could calm myself, I asked, but how is it that the handkerchiefs were pierced not only by the storm, but also by rain and snow? Don't these drops and snowflakes indicate venial sins? One of the men replied to my question, Don't you know that all matter is considered grave when purity is concerned? Nevertheless, don't toil. Come and see this. One of the men advanced in front of the balcony, made a sign with his hand to those young men, and shouted, Right face! Almost all the young men turned to the right, but some did not move from the spot, and their handkerchiefs ended up entirely torn. Then I saw the handkerchiefs of those who had turned to the right become very tight, all patched and sewn up so that no hole could be seen. They were, however, in such a bad state that they were pitiful. They no longer had any regularity. Some were seen to be three palms long, some two, and others one. The lady, meanwhile, added, Here boys had the misfortune of losing purity, but made up for it by confession. The others who did not move are those who continue in sin and may even go to hell. In the end, she said, tell no one in particular, but give only a general warning. Thus Don Bosco finished the narration of his dream. But on that same day, the Lord rewarded Don Bosco's zeal by leading a lost sheep to him. While in the courtyard, a gentleman presented himself saying he had to speak to him about a matter of great importance. Don Bosco led him to his room, and the man told him, I am a priest. I deserted the sacred ministry to enlist under Garibaldi. I apostatized and became a Protestant, but I am unhappy and could never settle my conscience. Now I am in a deplorable state not only of soul, but of body. I want to return to my bishop, but how can I do this? Don Bosco knew this poor wretch by reputation and answered him, Go ahead, the bishop has already been informed of everything and is ready to receive you. Do you have any money for your journey? I have not a penny, said the wretch. Don Bosco gave him money for the journey and a shirt to change into. That poor priest asked Don Bosco for a book. Yes, gladly, Don Bosco said but all I have is the breviary. But that's all that I desire, said the man. How unhappy are those who stray from the path of heaven. From this story and from the dream, we see that even those in sin, the worst of sin even, can reconcile with our Lord. So let's not wait another minute to examine our conscience and seek peace with him. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This is arguably one of the most important dreams or visions that God sent to St. John Bosco because it talks about the power of the Holy Rosary. And I think that after watching this video, you'll be encouraged to pray it every single day. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller.
St. John Bosco relates, I want to recount a dream I had a few nights ago about a snake and a rosary. I dreamt I was with all my boys in Castelnuovo di Asti at my brother's house. While they were all at play, a stranger invited me to accompany him. I followed him to a meadow adjoining the courtyard. He pointed out a snake over 20 feet long that was in the grass. I was horrified at such a sight and wanted to run away. No, don't run away, he said. Come and see. I answered, do you want me to approach that beast? Don't you know that it can attack and devour me in an instant? Have no fear, he said. It will do you no harm. Come with me. I'm not so crazy as to go and throw myself into such danger. Then wait here. He got a rope and returned to me and said, take this rope by one end and hold it tightly. I'll take the other and go to the opposite side and we'll suspend the rope over the snake. Then what? I asked. Then we'll let it fall and snap it on its back. If we do that, the snake will strike us and tear us to pieces. No, no, leave it to me, he said. I feared that this would cost me my life and I wanted to run away, but that fellow insisted again, assuring me that I had nothing to fear and that the snake would do me no harm. He reassured me and I stayed and consented to do his will. He went to the other side of the monster, raised the rope and snapped it on the snake's back. The snake leaped by turning its head back to bite what had hit it, but instead of biting the rope, it remained fastened by it as if in a noose. Then the man cried to me, hold fast, don't let the rope slip. So he tied his end of the rope to a pear tree and then took my end of the rope and tied it to a railing of the window of the house. In the meantime, the snake wriggled and struggled furiously, so much so that it tore itself to pieces. The snake died, leaving only his skeleton. The man untied the rope from the tree in the window and then said, watch carefully. He put the rope in a box and closed the lid. After a few moments, he opened the box. Several young men rushed around me to see what had occurred. We looked inside it and were all amazed. The rope had arranged itself perfectly to form the words, Hail Mary. I said, how did that happen? You threw that rope in there so haphazardly and now it's just so neatly arranged? The snake is a symbol of the devil, he replied and the rope is a symbol of the Hail Mary, or rather, the rosary, which is a continuation of the Hail Mary, with which one can beat, overcome, and destroy all the demons of hell. Don Bosco concluded, this was the first part of the dream. Now I will tell you the second part, but not all of it. I'll tell you as much as possible. But first, I must make you promise one condition, namely that no one should write or say what I shall relate outside of this house. So while that person and I were talking about the rope, the snake, and their meanings, I turned back and saw some young men picking up pieces of the snake and eating it. I cried out immediately, what are you doing, you fools? Don't you know that this snake meat is poisonous and will do you much harm? No, no, the young man answered, it's good. Meanwhile, those that had eaten fell to the ground. They were all swelled up and remained hard as stone. I was shouting at one and then another, slapping this one, punching that one, trying to stop them from eating, but to no avail. One would fall here and then another would start eating. 
Then I called the clerics to help me and told them that they should stand amid those young men and make every effort so that no one would eat any more of that meat. My order did not achieve the desired effect. Some of the clerics themselves took to eating the serpent's flesh and fell. I was beside myself when I saw a large number of young men lying on the ground in that miserable state. I then turned to that stranger and asked him, what does this mean? These young people know that the flesh brings them death, yet they want to eat it. Why? He answered, you know well that the sensual man does not perceive the things of God. But is there no remedy to save these young men? Yes, there is. And what's that? There is nothing but the hammer and the anvil. I looked at him with horror and said, use the anvil and the hammer? What should I do with such things? He said, it's necessary to subject young people to the actions of these instruments. How do I do that? Shall I put them on an anvil and then beat them with a hammer? Then explaining his thought, he said, the hammer represents confession, of course. The anvil, holy communion. One must make use of these two means. So I went to work and found this remedy most beneficial, but not for everyone. Many came back to life and were cured, but the remedy was useless for some. These were those who were not making good confessions. Privately, Don Bosco was asked why the clerics did not prevent the young men from eating the snake's flesh. He answered, all did not obey me. I saw clerics eating that meat. These dreams represent the reality of life, and with the words and deeds of Don Bosco, they manifest the intimate state of many communities, where, amid precious virtues, one sadly finds not a few miseries. This should come as no surprise, since vice, by its nature, multiplies far more than virtue, hence the need for constant vigilance. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist of all the different dreams of St. John Bosco that we've done on this channel, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Wake up. Yes, time to get up. In this story, St. John Bosco is almost mugged, but then he turns the situation around somehow and makes the thugs go to confession. We'll talk about his love for the sacrament of penance in this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus Christ says to the apostles, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Don Bosco understood the dignity and merit of his vocation. He had made his own the teaching of St. John Baptist de Rossi, sometimes called the Hunter of Souls, who said, Confession is the shortest road to paradise that I know of. It's a very great good for anyone who confesses. Therefore, Don Bosco preached so that he could then hear the confessions of poor sinners, and he thus ordered all his boys to recite a Hail Holy Queen daily to support their conversion. For Don Bosco, the confessional was a place of rest and delight, not a place of hard work. He never stopped his sacred ministry. He allotted two or three hours to confession every single day. He spent whole days and even whole nights in the confessional on special occasions. 
Not even during his infirmities did he cease hearing them. He exercised his inexhaustible passion for the sacrament of confession in many churches around Turin. He carried out this practice from 1844 until 1865. To all who knew him, he was the very symbol of confession. People who wished to be reconciled with God would seek him out in particular, especially those on the verge of despair who most needed his priestly charity. Many came to his oratory in Valdoco to see him. As Father Francis Dalmazzo said, I was told and I saw for myself that men would come into the oratory late at night to confess their sins to Don Bosco. Often they arrived with little hope of obtaining forgiveness. But when they emerged from the room of this man of God, their faces radiated joy and their hearts were filled with consolation. Don Bosco would invite them to return often, assuring them that God had erased all their faults in his infinite mercy. He was amazingly frank and would often ask, have you done your Easter duty? How's the state of your soul? How long has it been since you went to confession? These and similar questions, direct or indirect, were always on his lips, adapted to each person he encountered. We've heard him address these questions or insinuations not only to uneducated men, but also to wealthy shopkeepers, scholars, noble lords, and even princes, dukes, senators, deputies, army generals, ministers of state, and other influential persons, some of whom were known for writings, opinions, and other works contrary to the Catholic Church. Astonishingly, no one was ever offended by Don Bosco's apostolic freedom of expression. He always mixed his frank questions with exquisite kindness, esteem, reverence, and sometimes opportune humor. Don Bosco later told his Salesians regarding this, a priest is always a priest, and he must manifest his priesthood in his every word. To be a priest means to continually further God's interest, which is the salvation of souls. A priest must never allow anyone approaching him to leave without having heard a word that demonstrates his desire for the eternal salvation of the person's soul. Don Bosco had great skill and success in doing apostolate because of this, and whenever he conversed with people, he had the marvelous ability to investigate their moral state, including people who ordinarily had little interest in approaching the holy sacraments. So with his friendliness, Don Bosco would coax them into such a good mood that, almost without realizing it, they would reveal their inner miseries. Which brings us to the main story of today's episode. A gentleman from Cambiano tells us that around 1847, Don Bosco was walking outside Porta Nuova one morning among piles of wreckage, ditches, and barren land converted to apartment buildings when the Borgo Nuovo was built. He was returning from the church in Crocetta. On his way, he met four young men, aged 22 to 26, who gave him anything but pleasant looks. They stopped him and pretended to be friendly and said to him, listen please, Mr. Abbott, this man says that I'm wrong and I say that I'm right, so you decide. It was just two hours after sunrise and Don Bosco glanced around to see if there was anybody else, but the area was deserted. He feared an assault was imminent and committed himself to God. The youths went on telling him of strange fantasies. Then, without explaining what question they wanted him to answer, they
they kept repeating, go on, decide. Seeing that they had taken him for a buffoon, Don Bosco thought, here one has to be cunning to get away safely. So we said to them, listen, gentlemen, I can't decide on the spur of the moment, so let's all go and have a cup of coffee at San Carlo, and there I'll decide. At his invitation, one of the young men asked, are you paying? Don Bosco replied, of course I'm paying, because I'm making the invitation. Well then, let's go, they said, and they all walked toward that neighborhood, talking like old friends. When they reached the church of San Carlo, Don Bosco said, listen, gentlemen, I promised to pay for a cup of coffee. I'm a man of my word and will pay for it, but since I'm a priest, I want to treat you as a priest should. Let us therefore enter the church first and say a single Hail Mary. Aha, you look for excuses, they said. No, I'm not looking for excuses, Don Bosco answered. I'll pay, but first I want to say one Hail Mary. And then you'll bring out your rosary, the young men guessed. I said, just one Hail Mary, replied Don Bosco. Well, let's go in, they agreed. They went in, knelt, and recited the prayer. Then Don Bosco said, now let's go. So they went to the cafe and all drank their coffee, and afterward Don Bosco paid. Then when they came out of the cafe, he offered another invitation. Gentlemen, since I had the pleasure of making your acquaintance, I want you to come for refreshments in my house. They accepted, and he conducted them to Valdoco. Because he was now familiar with them, he said, Tell me, how long has it been since you've gone to confession? With the lives you lead, what would become of you if death surprised you in your current state? They looked at each other, and then at Don Bosco, who continued his sermon. One of the young men broke in and exclaimed, Yes, if we could find a priest like you, we'd go to confession, but... I'm here, though, said Don Bosco. But right now we're not prepared. I'll prepare you, he answered, and taking one of them by the hand and leading him to a kneeler, he said, Here, enough talk with your friends. And then to the other three, Get ready, I'm here for everyone. Three of them made their confessions with repentance. But the fourth young man did not, saying that for the moment he didn't feel like it. Then when they left, all four promised Don Bosco that they would return to visit him. So you see that one Hail Mary recited by Don Bosco produced incredible effects. Thank you for watching, and if you'd like to hear St. Dominic Savio's prophecies regarding England, please click on the video I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. If you'd like to get some tips from St. John Bosco in maintaining the virtue of purity, this video is for you. We'll be going over his cryptic dream called The Partridge and the Quail, which was a vision sent from God. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On January 16th, Don Bosco said, I'll tell you about a dream I had the night before last. I was hiking with all of you and many others. We stopped at a vineyard, and everyone went to eat the nearby fruit. Some ate figs, some grapes, some peaches, and some plums. 
I was in their midst, cutting branches of grapes, picking figs, and distributing them to the boys. I thought I was dreaming, and regretted that it was a dream. I said to myself, let the young men eat. Amid the rows of vines, we saw the vine dresser who cuts and cultivates the vines. We crossed the vineyard again, and the way was difficult. Deep furrows cut the vineyard, so we had to descend, climb, and jump across them. The stronger boys jumped over them. However, the smaller ones also jumped, but instead of reaching the opposite row, they fell and rolled into the ditch. So I looked around, saw a road bordering the vineyard, and headed toward it with all my boys. The vine dresser stopped me and said, Do not go on that road. It is impassable, full of stones, thorns, mud, and ditches. Continue on that path you were taking. I replied, well, You're right, but these little ones can't just walk through these ruts. He replied, Just let the older ones take the smaller ones on their shoulders, and they'll be able to jump over from row to row. His arguments did not persuade me, so I went with all the boys near the road and saw that he had told the truth. The road was frightening and impassable. We had no choice but to keep crossing those furrows along a path parallel to the dirt road. Thus, we went through the vineyard as best we could. Finally, we found a thick hedge of thorns at the vineyard's end that opened into a passage. With great difficulty, we descended from a high bank. We found ourselves in a delightful valley filled with trees and covered with grass. In the middle of this meadow, I saw two former oratory boys who came and greeted me. We talked for a while, when one of them held up two birds he had in his hand. Look, see how beautiful these are, he said. What are they? I replied. One is a partridge, and the other is a quail that I found. Is the partridge alive? I asked. Yes. He gave me the beautiful partridge that was only a few months old. Does it feed itself? While I was feeding it, I noticed that its beak was divided into four parts, and I marveled at this fact and asked the young man why. The four parts of the beak of the partridge and the partridge itself have the same meaning. I don't understand, I said. What is the word for partridge in Latin? He asked me. Uh, perdix, I said. Well, the letters that make up the word perdix have this meaning. P. Perseverancia. Perseverance. E. Eternitas tu expectat. Eternity awaits you. R. Referet unus quisque secundum opera sua prout jessit. Sive bonum, sive malum. Everyone must render an account of his deeds, whether good or evil. D. stands for Dempto nomine. Without regard to his name, worldly fame, glory, knowledge, or wealth. And I means ibit, he shall go. Now you also know what the four-parted beak means, which is the four last things. Oh, I see, I said, but what does X, the last letter, stand for? Can't you guess? Didn't you study mathematics? Well, X means the unknown, doesn't it? Good, he replied. Change unknown quantity for destiny, and it makes sense. He shall go to his unknown destiny. While I was amazed and persuaded by these explanations, I asked him, Will you give me this partridge? Yes, gladly, he replied. And then he asked, Would you also like to see the quail? Yes, let me see it. 
He then handed me what at least seemed to be a magnificent quail. I took it, lifted its wings, and saw that it was covered with sores and appeared ugly, rotten, and stunk. Then I asked my young man what this transformation meant. He answered, Do you remember when the Jews in the desert murmured, and God sent them quails, and they ate them? They still had those meats in their teeth when so many thousands of them were punished by the hand of God. This quail means that gluttony kills more by the throat than the sword, and that the origin of most sins comes from the throat. I thanked that young man for his kind explanations. Meanwhile, partridges and quail appeared in large numbers in the hedgerows, trees, and grass. The young men grabbed and ate as many of them as they could. We continued on our march, all refreshed. The boys that ate the partridge became hardy and continued on their way. Those who ate of the quail stayed in the valley and left me, and I no longer saw them. Suddenly the scene changed entirely. I seemed to be in an immense hall much larger than the oratory. It was filled with a great multitude of people. I looked around and knew no one. I didn't even see one boy from the oratory. While standing there, stunned, a man approached me, told me that a poor man was gravely ill and in danger of dying, and asked if I would hear his confession. I followed him and entered a room where I approached the sick man and began to hear his confession. Still, fearing that he would die without absolution, I cut the confession short. As soon as I had absolved him, he died. His corpse immediately began to stink so horribly that it couldn't be endured. I said he had to be buried immediately and asked why he smelled so bad, and I received this curious answer. He who dies so soon is soon judged. Leaving, I felt exhausted and asked to rest. I was led up a staircase to another room. Then, as I entered, I saw two young men from the oratory talking among themselves. One had a bundle, and I asked him, What are you holding? What are you all doing here? They apologized for being in that place, but didn't answer my question, so I asked again, Why are you here? They opened the bundle and drew out a funeral cloth. I looked around and saw a dead young man from the oratory, but I didn't recognize him. I asked the two young men who he was, but they apologized and wouldn't tell me. I approached the corpse and stared at his face, but couldn't place him. Wishing to know who he was, I descended the staircase and found myself once again in that great hall. The multitude of unknown people had disappeared, and in its place stood the young men of the oratory. When the young men saw me, they gathered around and said, Don Bosco, a boy from the oratory died. I asked them who it was, and no one wanted to give me an answer. Suffering this distress and disappointment in my search, I woke up and found myself in bed. That dream lasted all night, and in the morning I found myself so tired and concerned that it seemed that I had traveled all night. The things that I tell you should not be said outside the oratory. Speak of them among yourselves as long as you wish, but keep them between us. On the evening of January 18th, Don Bosco spoke again to his pupils, saying, You'll want to know a few more things about the dream. I will only explain what the quail and partridge mean. The partridge signifies virtue, 
while quail is vice. The quail was beautiful, but seen up close, it was putrid with sores and symbolized impurity. The boys that ate the quail gluttonously are those who give themselves over to sinful habits. Those that ate the partridge are those who love virtue and follow it. Some boys held the quail in one hand, the partridge in the other, and ate the quail. These know the beauty of virtue, but will not take advantage of God's grace to make themselves good. Others would hold the partridge in one hand and the quail in the other. They would eat the partridge, glancing toward the quail, trying to practice virtue, but with difficulty. If they don't change, they will fall. Others ate the partridge with quail fluttering before them. They continued to eat the partridge and ignored the quail. These follow virtue and regard vice with contempt. Others ate a little quail and a little partridge. They alternated between vice and virtue, deceiving themselves that they weren't so bad. You'll ask me, which of us ate the quail and which the partridge? I've already spoken to many, and the rest of you may come to me, and I'll tell you. Love virtue and hate impurity. Practice virtue by following the commandments, praying often, making frequent confessions, and receiving communion regularly. Avoid temptation, pray the rosary, and have recourse to Our Lady to help you. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Today I'm going to tell you four incredible stories in which St. John Bosco coaxes people to go to confession when they had no intention of doing so, including a man who would blaspheme regularly. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Once in the middle of the night, when Don Bosco was walking from Po toward Piazza Castello, a stranger approached and asked him for money. Don Bosco welcomed the stranger in his usual friendly way. He coaxed every secret from the mouth of the stranger and showed him the consequences of his bad life choices. Then he knelt by the man's side and heard his confession on top of a parapet behind the Madama Palace, which was a lonely and dark spot because there were few street lamps. At that moment, Canon Borsarelli was crossing the immense square near the unusual scene. Because it was dark, he didn't recognize Don Bosco. The canon approached some people who were also watching, and he asked who the priest was. It's Don Bosco, was the reply. The canon waited for Don Bosco in awe to finish hearing the stranger's confession. When that fellow left, the canon approached the good priest and accompanied him to the oratory. After that, as long as he lived, the canon remained Don Bosco's benefactor and friend. Another day, walking across the parade grounds, Don Bosco met a few scoundrels who started openly insulting him. Don Bosco responded by conversing with them in a friendly way. Shocked by his kind words and acknowledging their wrong, all but two of the rascals departed. The instigator, angry now, remained and continued to harass Don Bosco. Eventually, surprised by Don Bosco's calm, the instigator was tired of mistreating him and walked away. The one remaining man continued to rail against priests and religious and to say evil things about them. Don Bosco said to him, 
When you speak ill of priests, you insult me, your friend. You insult me because you do not recognize me. If you recognized me, you would speak differently. The astonished fellow scrutinized Don Bosco from head to toe, trying to remember whether he had met the priest. Don Bosco continued, I'm one of your best friends. The proof of my affection is that I do not take offense at your insulting me, and if I could do you any favor, I would gladly do it. I wish you happiness here on earth and in the next life. This speech led the man to begin speaking more respectfully. Don Bosco said to him bluntly, Believe me, happiness cannot be found in this world unless one is at peace with God. You're so angry because you don't think of the salvation of your soul. If death came to you right this instant, you wouldn't be happy about the state of your soul. The man became first thoughtful and then emotional. Don Bosco persuaded him to go to confession. But because he hadn't gone to confession for a long time, he invited him to go at once. I'm ready, the man replied, but where? Right here, Don Bosco said. Can we? The man asked. Of course we can, Don Bosco affirmed. They had been walking while they talked. They were still on the parade ground, and they had reached a spot where several trees provided seclusion. There, Don Bosco heard that poor man's confession. Beside himself with happiness, the man could no longer detach himself from Don Bosco, who had helped him find such peace of soul. Don Bosco used public coaches for his journeys and enjoyed talking with the coachman. He always had great regard for the working classes. Whenever his ride was over, he always gave the coachman a little extra money beyond the agreed-upon fee, saying, This is for you. He explained to those who couldn't understand his generosity, I take these opportunities to give some alms to poor people and to say a few good words they need to hear so badly. Sometimes, however, the coachman charged too much for the journey, but Don Bosco always paid what they asked so that they would not resort to quarreling or blasphemy. Don Bosco did not want the Lord to be outraged. Indeed, he wanted his students to follow his example. His secretary, Don Giacomo Berto, witnessed his generosity for over 20 years. Don Bosco's charity made him well-liked by the coachman and others of the working classes. Once, there was a coachman who thoughtlessly let some profanity slip from his mouth. Don Bosco didn't skip a beat, and he said, What did you say? I'm sure that you utter such words without thinking. In your heart, you're not bad because your face shows that you're a good man. Uh, you're right, you know, replied the coachman. It's a habit I've developed. I'm not too fond of this way of talking, but it happens when I'm not thinking about it. I regret so much that these swear words escape me, especially when I'm with priests. Try to correct yourself, Don Bosco advised him. Yes, I want to. I do, the coachman repeated. But there were new profanities after a while because of a hitch or a quirk with the horse. Don Bosco would just look at him. The coachman, still confused, listened attentively to what the good priest told him about God's goodness and chastisements, especially about the importance of changing one's ways and saving one's soul. The priest always ended his teaching with an invitation to confession. He urged them so effectively that the coachman always surrendered. Many even made their confessions from their seats as they drove the coach. Others confessed while fresh horses were hitched in the stables or inns. One day, Don Bosco was going to Carinano and was talking with the coachman as usual. 
Among other topics, Don Bosco asked the man, have you already carried out your Easter duty to confess? Not yet, the man said. It's been a long time since I've gone to confession. I would gladly confess to the priest I made my last confession to, if I could find him. He didn't realize it, but he made that last confession to Don Bosco in the prison of Turin. However, the coachman didn't recognize him at that moment, and Don Bosco no longer remembered him either. Don Bosco continued questioning him, who was the priest to whom you would be happy to confess? What's his name? Don Bosco. I don't know if you know him, the man said. Know him? I am Don Bosco. The coachman stared at him, recalled that confession, and recognized Don Bosco. Happily, he exclaimed, but how can I confess now? Give me the reins and get on your knees, Don Bosco said. The coachman instantly obeyed and confessed his sins as the horse slowly proceeded. Our last confession story was often told by Don Bosco himself. He said, I heard the coachman blaspheme whenever he lashed the horses. I then asked him to let me ride with him. He was willing, so I sat by his side. Then I began to say to him, I would like a favor from you. He interrupted me by saying, do you want to get to turn soon? Good, so do I. And he began to lash the horses with renewed vigor and cursed between every lash. This isn't what I want, I said. It matters little to me whether I arrive in Turin a quarter of an hour earlier or a quarter of an hour later. What I want is that you don't blaspheme anymore. Do you promise me that? Oh, if it's only this, rest assured that I won't blaspheme anymore. And I'm a man of my word, the coachman replied. Well, what do you want as a reward if you do this? Don Bosco asked. Eh, nothing, the man replied. I shouldn't be blaspheming anyway. I insisted, and finally the coachman demanded the gratuity of four soldi. I promised him twenty. Then the coachman lashed the horses again, and out came another curse. I warned him, and he said, Oh, what a beast I am. I've lost my head. Don't grieve over this, I added. I'll still give you the twenty soldi, but every time you swear, the money will go down by four soldi. All right, he replied. Rest assured, I will earn it all. After a time, the horses slowed, so the coachman lashed them, and out came another blasphemy. Sixteen, Soldi, my friend, I said to him. The poor man was truly ashamed, and he said, It's such a bad habit. I must overcome it. And he continued to mutter regretfully. After another stretch of road, he lashed the horses and uttered two more profanities. Eight, my friend, I warned him. We are down to eight, Soldi. Impossible, cried the man in a huff. Evil habits are so bad and harmful. I'm disheartened. Am I no longer master of myself? Besides, this accursed habit has already made me lose twelve soldi. You mustn't grieve for so little, but rather for the harm you do to your soul, I said. He answered, it's true, I do great evil, but on Saturday I want to go to confession. Are you from Turin? Yes, I said. I'm from the oratory of St. Francis de Sales. Good, he replied. I want to go to you for confession. What's your name, father? Don Bosco, I replied. All right, we shall see each other again. And he uttered only one more blasphemy all the way to Turin. Therefore, I owed him only four soldi, but I made him accept twenty for making such an effort not to swear. I returned home and waited for him week after week. 
The coachman finally came four Saturdays later. I saw him mingling with the young men, but didn't recognize him at first. When his turn came, he said, Don't you know me? I'm your coachman. I want you to know that in the past few days, in an instant of carelessness, I blasphemed the holy name of God, but then I never blasphemed again. I put myself on bread and water whenever I uttered a blasphemy. I have had to do that only once, and I do not want to go back to consuming just bread and water ever again. Through the years, many people recounted their beautiful encounters with Don Bosco to Father Michael Rua, and they were still grateful to the priest who had put them back in God's grace. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear all the stories that you really need to hear about St. John Bosco, please click on the playlist that I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco knew St. Joseph Cafasso very well from the time he spent studying at the Convito Ecclesiastic, which was a sort of boarding school for priests. Don Bosco even wrote a book about him, and it's from this book that I hope to tell you a story that will increase your fervor and devotion for the priest of the gallows. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. This is a story that Don Bosco used to tell about St. Joseph Cafasso. He writes, Every day after meals, we had a little recreation time. At this time, Don Cafasso became a teacher. His pupils absorbed the beautiful lessons of living in society, of dealing with the world without becoming slaves to it, and of becoming faithful priests equipped with the virtues necessary to form ministers who could give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. During these lessons, Don Cafasso described the conversions of sinners he presided over in hospitals, prisons, and other places to the delight and great advantage of the students. When Don Cafasso wasn't present, the students had a thousand stories to tell about their dear teacher. This is one of them. Don Cafasso had spent an entire week instructing and encouraging the inmates of a large prison to prepare them to celebrate a feast in honor of Mary Most Holy. These were about 45 of the most notorious criminals. Almost all had promised to seek the sacrament of confession on the eve of that solemnity. But as the appointed day came, no one was willing to begin that holy enterprise of going to confession. Don Cafasso renewed the invitation. He reminded them of all he had told them and of the promise they had made. But whether from human respect or the deception of the devil, or some other vain pretext, no one wanted to go to confession. In his charity, Don Cafasso knew exactly what to do. He laughingly approached the largest, strongest, and most robust of the prisoners. Without uttering a word, Don Cafasso grabbed the man by his long, thick beard with his small hands. The inmate thought that Don Cafasso was doing it for a joke, so in a polite way, or as politely as one can expect from such people, he said, Take everything from me, but leave my beard alone. I won't let you go until you come to confession, Don Cafasso said. But I'm not going, the inmate answered. Then I won't release you. But I don't want to go to confession, said the man. Say what you will, Don Cafasso replied. You will no longer run away from me, and I will not let you go until you've confessed your sins. But I'm not prepared, the man admitted. 
I'll prepare you, Don Cafaso replied. If that prisoner had wanted to, he could have easily freed himself from Don Cafaso's hands with the lightest of blows. But whether from respect for the teacher or as the fruit of the Lord's grace, the prisoner surrendered and allowed himself to be pulled by Don Cafaso into a corner of the large prison chamber. The venerable priest sat on a straw mattress and prepared his friend for confession. Surprisingly, the man was moved. Amid tears and sighs, he could hardly finish declaring his sins. Afterward, the prisoner who had first blasphemed and refused to confess went to his companions and told them he had never been so happy before in his life. He was so enthusiastic that he talked all of them into making their confessions. Whether one wishes to call this story, which I have chosen from thousands like it, a miracle of God's grace, or whether one desires to say it's a miracle of Don Cafaso's charity, one must recognize the hand of the Lord. Don Cafaso held confessions that day until very late at night when the prison exits were closed. He was on the verge of having to sleep with the inmates. The guards came in, armed with rifles, pistols, and sabers, and they set about making the usual rounds, holding lamps on the ends of long iron rods. While checking for possible escapes or fighting among the prisoners, they saw a stranger and shouted, Who goes there? Then, without waiting for an answer, they surrounded him and threatened him, saying, What are you doing here? Who are you? Don Cafaso wanted to speak, but it was impossible because the guard shouted, Stand still! Don't move! Tell us who you are! I'm Don Cafaso, he exclaimed. Don Cafaso? How? At this hour? Why didn't you leave on time? We can no longer let you leave without reporting it to the warden. I don't mind, he answered. Go ahead and make the report to whoever you want. But mind you, at nightfall, you were supposed to bring out all prison visitors. That was your duty, and you are at fault for not doing so. They all fell silent at this, and then they begged Don Cafaso to keep quiet about what had happened. So they opened the door for him, and, to win his goodwill, accompanied him as far as his house. Don Cafaso never heard any more of this incident after that. Four times a year, on major solemnities, he would kindly distribute bread and fruit among the inmates, and asked them to say a Hail Mary to help save his soul. The prayers of these prisoners were certainly heard as Father Joseph Cafaso was canonized in 1947. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a video on St. Dominic Savio, please click on the video I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In this video, we'll be discussing some miracles Don Bosco performed while he lived. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco was always ready to make sacrifices for his boys. He was joyful if they were joyful, suffered if they suffered, wept at their weeping, and was fortunate in their fortunes. He even became ill if they fell ill. Indeed, he became sick to heal them. In the early years of the oratory, whenever a young man had a fever, toothache, headache, or intestinal troubles, he went to Don Bosco, and our Lord answered Don Bosco's prayers. There was once a young man who felt ill, and Don Bosco told him, Have courage, I will take part in your sickness. 
He uttered these words laughing, but then he too would develop a headache, earache, or terrible toothache, and at the same time, the young man instantly felt well. After a few years, however, Don Bosco proved that he could no longer fulfill his duties if he were unwell. He realized his presence was necessary for the smooth running of the oratory's many affairs. So he no longer prayed to take the illness away from the young people in his care. I was enthusiastic to keep doing it, he told the young men, hiding his virtue as much as possible. But they knew how much this good father loved them, even as he continued to call this heroic act of charity madness. One day, he saw a young man tormented by excruciating pain in his teeth. Don Bosco told him, Be of good cheer. I'll go and pray, asking the Lord to give me a share of your pain. The young man replied that he did not want to see Don Bosco suffer, but the good father kept his word. When evening came, as soon as he had eaten, Don Bosco felt a much worse toothache. He was in so much pain that he contacted his mother, saying, Please do not abandon me, for I am afraid I might throw myself out of some window. I fear this pain will take away my ability to think. Nevertheless, as usual, he did not renege on his sacrifice. He didn't ask the Lord to deliver him from his torment, but instead he subjected himself to the consequences of his offering for the young man's sake. Don Bosco's mother, Margarita, was distressed by his pain. She didn't know what to do nor what remedy to find. Don Bosco spent part of the night in this pain. Once it became unbearable, he called young Buzzetti and begged to be taken to a dentist. They looked and saw the sign of Camuso, a dentist to the king above a doorway. They knocked, and the door was opened for them. But the young man who answered and introduced himself said that Signor Camuso was in bed at that hour. Call him, said Don Bosco. See if he can come and operate on my tooth. I am so tormented. Then come in, replied that apprentice. My master knows what the ailment is, and he'll get up quickly. Signor Camuso came and examined Don Bosco's teeth, but he saw nothing wrong. They were all healthy. Only the gums were inflamed. But what can we do, said the dentist. We'd have to try something extreme, like pulling out a tooth. It wasn't easy to imagine pulling a tooth that seemed very healthy and was well positioned with the others. But in Don Bosco's degree of pain, he was willing to have them all pulled out. He wasn't afraid of feeling more pain than he had already felt. So he sat down, and the dentist pulled the tooth as gently as possible. Don Bosco fainted away and had to be given smelling salts to bring him around again. But by the time Don Bosco returned home, the pain had left him entirely. The young man with the original toothache had also recovered. Don Bosco's ability to heal others was a reward from God that lasted as long as he lived. Don Turchi Giovanni, an eyewitness, told us of other marvelous cures worked by Don Bosco. Here are two of them. At around 1850, a young man who attended the oratory had a leg covered in sores that oozed pus, and gangrene was a real threat. So his relatives sent for Don Bosco, and, with sorrow, they told him how the doctors planned to amputate the young man's leg. No, answered Don Bosco, this won't happen. Have faith, and there will be no amputation. He invited the young man to make some promises. Then Don Bosco blessed him, invoking St. Aloysius Gonzaga and Luis Camolo. The next day, when the doctors arrived, he examined the leg and found it healed. 
but the sores remained as holes in the skin. The young man got up, but his leg continued to ache somewhat, but only when the weather changed. However, after a short time, he proved unfaithful to his promises and became as ill as before. Don Bosco visited him and quickly guessed why the young man had relapsed. Then, having the young man renew his promises, Don Bosco again blessed him, and the unhappy man was cured. The second example involved a young student named G. Turco in 1853 who went to bed one winter evening with a very high fever. He felt a great ache through his whole body. He tossed and turned in bed without finding a comfortable position, and he groaned, moaned, and wept. Informed of his illness, Don Bosco went to see him after supper while the students were at recess and waiting for their singing lessons. With his kind mannerisms, Don Bosco instilled a remarkable calm in the young man. He encouraged him to have a lively faith in St. Aloysius Gonzaga and to make a special vow to that saint. Finally, Don Bosco blessed him after invoking St. Aloysius and left after wishing him a good night. The sick man could not later explain what had happened, as he remembered nothing. He instantly fell asleep, sweating profusely. Then, in the morning, he woke up to find himself perfectly cured after a long sleep. Don Bosco, always caring for the health of his students, asked for news of the sick man as soon as he left Mass, and was told that Turco was with the others, happily eating his loaf of bread. The young man later said, I have always regarded the recovery of my illness as a miracle. But the Lord did not always consider a sudden recovery suitable, as we will now learn in another account of Don Bosco's charity. If a young man fell ill, Don Bosco had him moved to the infirmary, where the boy was diligently cared for. Don Ascanio Savio tells us, I experienced his care, which I would say was maternal, when I was stricken with typhus. Don Bosco, although very busy, didn't neglect to visit his sick students. He came immediately if the case was serious. He would call the doctor and lead him to the boy's bed. His students were so close to his heart that even when he could not visit them, he often asked about them, inquired whether medicines had been prescribed, and repeated his order that the patients should not be left to fend for themselves. He used to say, be economical in other circumstances, but provide those who are sick with whatever they need. If a sick child got worse, Don Bosco would stay with him during the day and at night if necessary. Above all, he would see to it that the young man received the holy sacraments on time and was in the state of grace. His manners were so charming, his words so affectionate and full of holy anointing, that the sick seemed to feel no more pain. Our Lord said that no greater love exists than to lay down one's life out of love for another soul. This teaching certainly applies to Don Bosco. He worked miracles in many ways, including healing his boys, making them promise to love God and Our Lady, and encouraging them to practice virtue, observe the commandments, and do everything else that would save their souls. Thank you all so much for watching this very special episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco. And if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.